So June, I hear you got a new job. Yes. Uh, yes. I didn't last very long at my old job. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I guess part of the show is to talk about, you know, what, well, we're calling it a retrospective, I guess. One year, but it's a little more than a year. Yeah, he's that agile, uh, his agile term. Right, right, right. So yeah, yeah, I got a new jobby job. It's a little further from where we live, but it's not that yeah. big of a deal. We're actually now looking at homes. We did our first home tour of two different houses today. Oh Anyways, shit! Really? But, wow. All right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I I had I didn't even expect because Carolina and I were um, like we were just kind of hanging out today, and at some point, Carolina was like, "Oh, you want to just uh, <laughs> you want to just go look at a couple houses?" <laughs> I was like, "What?" When you use Redfin, it's like super easy. You know, you just say book a tour. And then it literally, like, you get paired with an agent very quickly. And within the hour, hmm. they confirm or they confirm the tour. I guess they don't have to confirm, but it was that quick. So, yeah, I booked a 4.30 p.m. tour at 1 p.m. And the agent was there, met us there. They don't really do much because it was just for us, really. They're just kind of, like, opening the door for us, really. So, June, I have a question for you. If you were to buy a house through Redfin, how fast is that turnaround? It sounds like they're already available for move-in. And you basically would just... Well, that's not necessarily whole... true. Okay. I mean, it's not necessarily true that they're available for move-in. Every buyer has their own preferred time. That kind of comes down to some of the negotiation of agreeing on a closing date and a move-in date and things like that. So, yeah. I see. I mean, one house we looked at was empty. So I'm pretty sure they want someone moving in as soon as possible. And then the other house, it was very obvious that someone still lives there. So got it. Yeah. But anyways, not to derail, I guess, from the the jobby job, but I'd be going back to sort of the same line of work that I was originally with. Well, with the company I used to work for, although very different type, even though it's the same industry. So it's government contracting, but basically my little one and a half year stint in the commercial world, in the commercial industry has really allowed me to realize things I, I guess I took for granted in the type of contracting work that could be pretty nice that I never really realized. June, do you mind if I do a little bit of a question mm-hmm. and answer session with you real quick? Sure. So... In government work, there's a lot of process. And sometimes we would say there's too much process. Do you think that process in government work is now somewhat more beneficial, having come from the commercial world where maybe there was less process? Well, I don't think my commercial experience encompasses everybody's experience with the commercial world, mostly because a commercial company I was working for is massive. It's actually bigger than the previous company. And so oh wow, it has its own, it necessarily has bureaucracies and process and things like that. Now, albeit, I worked on basically the IT side, right? Which includes the guys who write code and for the database, for the server, app tiers, for the clients. So we're sort of like the IT group, which is, you know, compared to the entire size of the company is much smaller, but we still have, you know, a good amount of process. So 
it's very different than say working for some small recent startup that's in the commercial world, right? So it's not going to be the same. We still definitely have processes. Now, compared to my previous company, though, to be able to change a line of code, well, really all the way from, okay, a bug gets reported, you need to go fix this bug. And from the point of the bug report to releasing a fix and putting that fix in production, I would say is pretty, it's a lot faster. And I was more working on a project where it was taking a project, a product that didn't exist at all, making the product, right? So it wasn't quite like fixing bugs. (laughs) It was more like do something new, brand new, and then we're, and the goal was to put it in production, right? So I'll say, I feel like the software developers definitely had more leeway to do these kinds of things. And part of that was because we didn't, our our clients, right, our customer, since we were sort of the IT for the the in-house IT, our customer, quote unquote, was the company itself. So we didn't have an official set of customers that we have to have every everything approved, every design approved by the government, basically. There wasn't that round of approval processes and things like that and signatures and all that kind of stuff. There was not that type of formality. Now, we did have, you know, our equivalent of a, cl- a customer, they were, you know, they were called users, right? So they were the people who used our products. And so they typically are the ones that were kind of out in the field, right? And using the, the software that we wrote. So they essentially dictate, you know, new features they want to see. Or in the case of like a new system, what is it from the ground up? Like, what is it that they want? So I feel like in general, because of that lack of a, an official customer, we can write something, we come up with the design and there pretty much is no approval process from the user's perspective. We get to just try it. It has to go through approvals in the in our development management's chain, right? As long as the managers are fine with it, and the architects are fine with it, then just go ahead. There's no like, all right, let's have like 10 meetings with <laughs> the customer, right? To get approval and things like that, which has its pros and cons. So are there any systems engineers in your new job or in your old job rather? No, so that's a big difference. There are no, there are no well, the old job has system engineers, right? This new job does not have system well, engineers. New, uh, let's get our, our terms straight. <laughs> the job you're working as of, Last week is the old job at this point. Oh, the new job is. okay. I, yeah, sorry. Yeah, right. at least and that's how I was thinking of it. That time has passed. Um, has ended. The book is closed. <laughs> did, you, did you delete them well, from your phone? Did you block as them? of as of literally <laughs> right now, Alec, I'm still in limbo. Technically, I have not started. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're unemployed. You're a bum. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So compared to my first job, yeah, that are, you know, we didn't have system engineers. We don't have test engineers, you know, integration and test engineer. No, we just had software developers and QA. And then ultimately the users who essentially gave us the, the yay or nay for actually putting it out into production. Um, so do you think that ultimately diminished the product? Do you think that the lack of systems engineering or pre-thought hurt how business went down? I got to say, 
So this is where I was going to get into some of the pros and cons, right? So yeah. because we don't have these systems engineers, we essentially have no formal system engineering process, right? So I don't know if listeners know what the V-chart is, but you know what the V-chart is, right? I do. Right. So, you know, you take requirements, you take you take what a customer wants you boil it down to requirements, right? You boil it all, and then the requirements get boiled down to designs. Designs get boiled down to actual implementation, right? Code, things like that. Then that has to flow all the way back up to to integrating integrating the different um, components that got coded, and then testing it, verifying it, and all that stuff that bubbles back up the V V chain. Um, so you 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 start a, you sort of start at the high level conceptual you dive down deep you go down the v and then you come back up when you integrate things together and you start testing it and then you start doing more and more black box testing and that's sort of at the top of the v again so anyways that said pretty much chunks of that v are just completely absent right at my previous company and there are pros and cons so the pro is that you essentially get from one part of the v to the other part of the v much quicker right theoretically and it's not necessarily quite a v it's maybe like a uh, a w with a lot of ups and downs in the middle <laughs> it's like an extended w <laughs> you know what i mean like <laughs> it kind of and especially since we're trying to do agile it's really like a you know yeah I, I, I don't know why i just did an onomatopoeia of what i'm picturing but anyways <laughs> it, it's it's colorful i like it yeah <laughs> you know what i'm trying to say though right like oh, um, oh totally i think and i think everyone got it now okay yeah. <laughs> um but anyways so the idea is because they're is just huge chunks missing, we're able to sort of bounce back and forth between development and testing very quickly. We don't have to have, man, uh, without really giving away maybe too much of the company I used to work for, but the idea is like, there used to be like, okay, if you want to change something, sure, go make the code change, but then you also had to like complete documentation for here's the was, here's the is, right? Then you have to like come up with an entire new like build documentation, configuration management documentation, all these things that are needed until it gets to QA, right? For us, we literally make a change and it gets, and then we tell QA, here's the new build version number and you can go deploy it to your environment at any point you want. And they, they just do it the next day or the same day of, and then they go test it. So from that perspective, I feel like compared to my first job, that was super efficient, right? Now the downside is what happens is because we don't have systems engineers, a lot of times what happens is, and, and you know, our clients, quote unquote, again, like they're not official clients. They are just our users who say, ah, I like to see this feature. I like to see these things. And then they essentially get boiled down to some sort of vague set of requirements. Like compared to my first government contracting job, these requirements are a joke. They are ambiguous. They're vague. There is no, the people who wrote these requirements are business analysts. They're not systems engineers. They don't think of requirements as like, they're not engineers, right? They're not, they're not really detail oriented people. And when you're writing technical requirements, right? Um, you, you, <laughs> 
you have to sort of be, well, they're, they start at the functional requirements, but the functional requirements are so vague. They don't really de describe what they want to do. And so what happens is that, and since we don't have systems engineers, eventually it's left to the developers to just go and try and implement and interpret, right? If the developers are the ones interpreting these extremely vague and ambiguous requirements. And in the end, it's such it's basically a huge headache. We'll have arguments back and forth with our users to say, are you sure you want this? Or you want this, but you realize it's going to take like an extra like 30 days, you know what I mean, to implement? Or did you want this other version, which is much faster and easier and blah, 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 blah. So there's a lot of headache <laughs> between because we don't have system engineers and two, because we don't really have actual contractual language of, you know, back at, you know, when you do cover government contracting, it is, you know, you're legally bound, right? The, the requirements are sort of legal obligations, right? Um, if you don't deliver it, then you're a big, you know, doo-doo, right? So, but here it's just like, someone could write a requirement and it's up in the wind. It's completely up for interpretation. It's vague. Yeah. So there's pros and cons. Well, I have a question for you based off mm -hmm. the, the document. So it says June's done commercial industry. That Does that mean you're not trying to go back to it eventually? That you don't want to consider it later on? Well, I didn't say done with commercial, commercial industry. That's what I was asking. I'm not sure. What does it mean? It just means I did commercial. <laughs> you, you I was just it. trying to say I've dabbled in commercial industry now, but Again, like commercial industry doesn't, it's, it's a broad term. Um, I don't think what I did necessarily reflects even the majority of what commercial industry is like. So it's hard to say. I'd say the last company I was at was probably more closely aligned with my first company, right? Okay. Yeah, I can see why you'd say that. Which was a, which was a government contractor. But except for like essentially all these main differences I was just talking about. So... I guess the two questions I have to end this this little piece of the series <laughs> is you said that you took a few things for granted at your first job. What were those things now in retrospect? And I guess based off the things we said during our first episode together about finding a new job, I know this was a different process for you because you really didn't interview around, but do you have any other advice or things that you realized during this process? So some of the things I took for granted was just simply when you're doing contract work for the government, your company bills the government based on hours spent, right? So things like essentially tracking things like hours of your employees is you know extremely important. Now, what that means is things like a manager can't simply just say, well, you know what, um, work as much as you need this week to get this thing done, right? They don't quite say that as often because what they realize is then employees will start locking a lot of overtime. And depending on your manager and depending on your project, in my experience, most of the time, working overtime was a, you know, a big no-no. It costed the company extra, didn't look good on the manager itself, was sort of a sign of bad planning. So that is usually <laughs> the case, I guess, in my experience with sort of government contract work. Now, my previous company that I was just at, that was the complete opposite, right? It, we didn't really track hours spent as much, right? We just sort of said, 
every day how much we worked, and at the end, you sum up a number. But nobody really looks at those numbers, right? They just ultimately say, hey, you need to get all these things done by the week, and we don't really care how much you work. And I think a big part of that is work-life balance then, right? Which we really, towards the last like couple months, we didn't really have any of that. Occasional overtime became overtime every week, as well as um, mandatory weekend work, right? So there's there's sort of no accountability, to, in my experience in the commercial world, for bad management of a project, at, at least for this company. Now, again, like everybody's got different experiences, but I feel like when a plan goes to, you know, was not planned well, which was very much the case with this last project I was working on, they still expect actuals to align with a plan that was done two years ago. It just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, and they say they're doing agile when they really aren't. So nothing was really grounded in reality. And I feel like there then isn't a feedback loop to go back to management to say, well, if you just end up making everybody work all these extra hours to try and meet a plan that was already aggressive, too aggressive, that's already out of date, and that's no longer grounded in reality, and you don't, you're not willing to sort of change, then that's sort of a fundamental problem, I think. So that was sort of one thing. The other thing is sort of hearkening back to what I was saying earlier about some of the important things about systems engineering. Um, I guess I'll give a sort of a good example, right? So the the five systems that I was talking about before where these five systems were supposed to get replaced by one new system, right? Everything gets rewritten, right? The entire service side, the UIs get rewritten. The problem was the five different systems still had their five different teams, right? So as far as we were concerned, these five different systems still had their own different, for example, input streams, right? So they get data from their own different streams and the data is all supposed to get married together nicely into a database, right? Now the problem is in the past, system B requests some data from system A. System A says, here you go, right? System A takes all of its its inputs, right? and compiles a formatted message back to system B and system B says, thank you, and takes that and does stuff with it, right? And that message, that formatted message is documented. It is a fixed length, say fixed length, you know, message or JSON message, doesn't matter, right? It's documented. Mm -hmm. Every bit in a fixed length message gets documented. (laughs) You got data types, you got how big the field size, you know, the field is, everything, right? And these are interface documents that are extremely critical. Now, when they were doing this, when they were doing the design and the architecture work for this new system, system A and system B had no interface documentation. It was just, it was simply like system A takes its inputs, puts it into this common database, and system B is supposed to say, just know where to get that data from now. So it is no longer a formatted message, but instead system B now has to figure out where the hell all the fields that it was used to getting in a message, but now figuring out where to get it from database tables and columns with a schema that really doesn't make much sense. So there was no interface documentation. And in the end, a lot of times we had issues where the team that worked on system A thinks that they did whatever they needed to make the team that works on system B happy. And then system B, when they try to deliver and it goes to test, they realize, oh crap, we're using 
completely wrong columns or we were using the completely wrong tables, right? <laughs> like who knew that, you know, scheduled service date is is not the actual same thing as this other column in another table that's also called schedule service date. And it's just like, um, <laughs> you know, like it, it drives me up the wall still. Like it still kind of gets my blood boiling because then what happens is system B starts yelling at system A and then everybody hates each other and nobody really talks <laughs> to each other for a day. And then all the management guys get worried and they start, you know, yelling at people too. And it's just like, these are the kind of things that I think a systems engineer could have easily like helped prevent to sort of A, hash out these sort of interface related documentation, right? And just specifications and put it in some kind of writing, have both teams agree. So if I can jump back a little bit to a systems engineer role again, like it's really, that systems engineer is an integrator, right? It's really a role that it's a skill that any lead has to know, right? Any lead who has to end up working across teams, working across totally different systems has to really have these skills to know like how to understand an interface, document the interface, or, well, I skipped a step, design the interface, right? So that part was completely missing at my previous job. And I I think that the project really suffered for it. All right. So I guess the last question was the, uh, what, what other takeaways from this process would you uh, share with our listeners? The process in terms of like finding a job and all that stuff or change it to a new job. Yeah. If you have any, if you have any update from that perspective. Well, I guess the main thing would be always be open to opportunities. And I think people our generation tend to have that as more of the ingrained mindset. Whereas I think people of like the baby boomer generation, 20, 30, you know, year older guys, right. They're definitely of a mindset. That's like, there's a certain set of loyalty to a company. Like we, you know, there's a lot of guys in my previous company who, you know, they joke, but they have a term for guys who are so close to their pensions. Right. So management knows that they can work them to the bone because they know they won't leave. Uh, and the term is called golden handcuffs, right? They're gold. They have golden handcuffs. Ah, yes. um, and the idea is they started off when they first started at these companies, they were really taken care of, right? They had a nice big fat pension plan, right? They had um, uh, big bonuses, right? And all these things I was supposed to sort of like, you felt like the company took care of you. If you took, you know, worked your ass off, right? You worked hard for the company, I think nowadays it is just not the case anymore. Nowadays, people really do kind of, or they're constantly like looking out, you know, the company is supposed to really provide the good space for the employee. And if they don't, the employee is going to leave. I mean, especially right now with just how hot the job market is, right? It's like, especially for software engineers, you know, (laughs) I think my management is starting to realize that, especially after I've left, they're kind of realizing like, oh crap. We can't just start, you know, we can't just sort of thrash these guys around like we used to with (laughs) like 20 years ago, right? These guys will just easily find a job somewhere else. So I feel like because of the good market, right? Because of just sort of making sure that you are A, working on the thing that things that you find interesting and B, that you're not stagnant, that you're sort of constantly still learning new skills, If you're the kind of guy who wants to stay technical, then making sure that 
you're constantly switching to different projects because then that means you're hopefully learning new tools, right? New languages, whatever, right? Um, new architectures um, that add to your tool belt, right? If you want to do management, you're sort of then hopefully also switching between projects because then that means working with different people, working with different people who have different working styles and you're sort of still working on negotiation and soft skills that are different. And I feel like if the company itself doesn't really help you develop anymore, then you have to be open to, you know, opportunities. And even I get I guess I'd go as far as to say, even if you're happy where you are, still keep an eye out. You never know. I feel like when Alec was sort of asking me to like, you know, when you were asking me to give you a resume, I was initially kind of like, eh, nah, you know, I'll, I'll sort of ride the storm out, you know, see how it was. But that was, I'm glad I gave it to you because I did not know when I first gave you my resume exactly the kind of like shithole that this uh, project was going to be in. And at that time, we were still sort of occasionally doing overtime, you know. It was not, it was nowhere near like the constant 60 hour weeks every week that we were doing like now, right? So thankfully I got out um, when I did, basically. I'm kind of, I was actually telling some of my um, like coworkers before that I'm hoping that after I left, and by the way, I'm not the first to leave, right? My team, I'm the sixth person to leave my team. Um, wow. Yeah. Now granted, How big was your I'm, team? it was like 15 people, right? Uh, it grew to like 25. It started okay. at 13 and it grew to 25. <laughs> Half of it is... You is, put, uh, put that on your resume. Grew my team on this twice fold. <laughs> <laughs> Half the... Well, that's part of the problem, right? It's like managers are like, oh, crap, you're so far behind. So let me throw all these like global development people. They're basically contractors from India. Oh, right, that, right. I think I was telling you about this, right? So they yeah, think like throwing people on a project means, you know... You're you're instantly going to get more productivity. <laughs> yeah, Good old a, mythical man, the, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, can a baby still takes nine months <laughs> to develop? <laughs> Not three months if you throw on two more people, <laughs> two more husbands. <laughs> uh, so, anyways. Yeah, I think uh, that was a big problem. And it ended up actually really slowing us down because had to you spend time training these people. But anyways. Yeah, so actually, June, that, that statement about bringing people on, that's actually why it's a perfect reason for you not to come on just yet to my team. I think it's actually, the way everything is lined up, it might be perfect for you to join the team because right now we're trying to get a shipment ready for uh, a big event going on later this year we need to be full steam ahead sometimes yeah. i feel like even the newer people on the team um it's like i don't know let's let's bat bang down the hatches we'll see you in a couple months like <laughs> you know what i mean like we need to be go 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 just because it's trying to get as much as we can before it's due so to speak right it's always a balancing act and i think that's you know as a lead now i think that's definitely one of the things you'll have to really figure out how that balancing act works, which is, right. you know, you're, you're, you're sort of always thinking like, well, training new people may initially, you know, take more time and be less efficient, but ultimately it's an investment, right. In the entire project. And it's not just an investment in the project, but it's investment in the employees themselves. Right. Because yes. then, mm -hmm. then you're helping them learn a new skill as well. And I think 
in the long run, that also benefits the entire company or the business as a whole too. So there's always sort of like, yeah, you got to kind of look at the pros and the cons, right? So anyways, it's a difficult balancing act for sure. Yeah, I think, yeah. So anyways, going back to like what I was telling my coworkers when I was, you know, when we realized, yeah, June, you're like the sixth person to leave. Like, obviously it's not really, and I guess out of the six people, I was sort of the the highest position to have left, right? So I feel like a few days, especially the last day that I was there, had a lot of interesting conversations with people and people from other teams too. And essentially boils down to like a lot of senior managers kind of having an oh shit moment and saying, yeah, we can't keep doing this. <laughs> and it's like every senior manager has completely forgot what being a manager means. Right. And all of a sudden they just kind of realize, oh, right. Um, <laughs> we're, we're making, we're doing the complete opposite. We're, we're working people to death thinking like, you know, following a schedule instead of treating your employees right. And, and the product follows, right? It's just completely like, it's like nobody ever had a management training class um, in these like senior managers. Uh, So anyways, they they finally realized, yeah, they had a bunch of these oh shit moments. And then uh, and I'm kind of hoping that honestly, like not trying to sort of do it like a humble brag kind of thing, but you know, I was like, if I, you know, with me leaving um, and potentially with, someone else leaving too, because I was talking to this other person who was considering the same thing, right? Like, yeah, I'm like, like with, with me leaving, hopefully they start to really do things differently. Honestly, for the sake of those people who are in golden handcuffs, I don't like seeing them treated the way they are. You know, they were seriously taken advantage of. And I had a lot of good friends that, you know, were just a few years from retiring or with their pension. Right. And it's just like, they're good people and they have their own families and they're just sort of getting tossed around. Cause, (laughs) uh, yeah, I, I didn't really, yeah. And I, it was bittersweet because I also realized that me leaving means leaving a hole and I'm not exactly helping them out. Right. By leaving. So it's an interesting thing, but you know, that kind of, I guess maybe that can sort of, dovetail into an advice as well is if you ever leave a job don't feel guilty if you left for reasons that you think are valid and legitimate even if you may think it's selfish at the end of the day it's not your job to then figure out how the company is going to survive if you leave so there is no there shouldn't be any guilt felt if that makes sense and a lot of times like heck if, if you just wanted to go somewhere else because the pay was better. Do it. You know, like you sort of, from a company's perspective, the entire, this whole loyalty based, you know, employment type of, you know, uh, work that was 20, 30 years ago, that's just no longer the case. Um, If a company wants to keep employees, they have to keep them well-paid and happy, motivated. They have to make their employees take ownership in what they do. Um, And if they don't do that and they don't pay them enough, especially, you know, compensation is obviously an important aspect, then yeah, they can't expect these employees to stay. So yeah, I, I, I think a lot of people, they might end up going through like emotions, right? That range from guilt to sort of like feeling, you know, like feeling bad basically. And I've known people who, having had some conversations with them, 
they won't even look for opportunities because of these emotions, right? Because of the mm-hmm. guilt that they feel like they, they would have. I, I'd say, look, there's more to life outside of work. <laughs> if if you're not happy at work, uh, you know what? Uh, let me change that motto. It's not there's more to life than work. It's that work is necessarily part of life. And thus, it needs to be a part of, you know, it needs to be something that you enjoy, right? If your goal is to have, you know, to live, you know, a, a meaningful life, work necessarily has to be meaningful. And if that's just not the case, then look elsewhere. That's kind of my two cents, I guess. Um, yeah, and the same kind of goes true for people who have meaningful work, but may not be paid as much, and they would rather stay, right? Because, heck, they think they're doing better work. I mean, I'm actually taking a small pay dip, right, in terms of total compensation to take this new job, but I think it's definitely worth it, though. Well, June, thank you for sharing all that and giving us all that perspective. I'm, I'm hoping the best for you. I'm excited for you, and we'll obviously keep in touch and see how it's going, uh, which kind of leads into the next part of the conversation. So you led a team of 25, 26 people, like you were saying, and now I'm trying to lead a team of tomorrow three. (laughs) So not quite the same scale, but in the last... So a couple weeks ago, I was named the acting section supervisor, and two days before that, or a day before that, I was named the assistant software lead and scrum master of my project, and then Monday was the day of rest, and then Tuesday, (laughs) I was asked to lead the mentoring team for next year for the sector, and I was like, holy cow, what what a week, right? And it was not until about Friday of last week, so a couple days ago, that I had that first moment where I was like, oh, wow. Like, it kind of hit me, the new position I was in. I had, well, to be fair, on my project, I went to my tech lead and I said, so how much leash do I have now? Like, I always contributed to the team. I gave it my opinion. But at the end of the day, I would say, you know, mother may I kind of thing. So how often now with this new declaration of, of leadership, how often do I need to check in and, and say and ask these things? Or do you want me to take more agency and just do these things and not get like, and that's the whole point of me having these roles is to take things off your plate. Like how often do you want me to check in? We basically came to the conclusion that it's going to be a function of, we'll keep, to keep asking me and eventually you'll be able to tell. And I'll tell you if you, you could have just done that and it'd be fine. So that's like one thing I'm learning in the leadership And also I've noticed suddenly, you know, I'm not any different than I was three weeks ago, but suddenly now when I am in a meeting, I'm representing the leadership team and they'll ask me questions from the leadership team. And they'll also say to me, like, it seems like my, the words I say have more impact and they, people are asking my opinion as if it matters now. Whereas before I felt like I was just offering it because I had one (laughs) and that's what I I was told, you know you know, offer your opinion if you have one. But now it's like, oh, what do you think, Alec? Like, we want to know. And it's just weird. It's a little different and strange. Like I said, I feel like it's odd because three weeks ago, they would never have asked that question. But I don't feel like I'm any less capable or more capable of answering the questions. <laughs> so I, I didn't know if you went through that when you first started in that leadership role at your old company. I think this is a big function of personality. 
And I think um, everybody's individual work ethic, as well as, you know, what they're comfortable with. Now, when I first started at my previous company, I was hired in directly as the lead, lead developer with 13 guys to start with, which then grew to 25. So right from the bat, my manager was telling me, June, I'm leaving. I'm trusting you to go, you know, get this project done. Right. So make whatever decisions you need to for the team. Right. To make sure things get done. And I represented my team. You know, I represented three of the five applications in leadership meetings from the get go. Right. And that was when, when I first started, I knew nothing about the company. I knew nothing about the business, the operations, right? The processes. And I was thrown into these meetings, right? So <laughs> I think I definitely had a interesting learning curve as well, but I was sort of thrown right into it. <laughs> you know, I did not have the three foot, you know, side of the pool to sort of work with. <laughs> um, yeah. And also, I guess the big thing for me is I've had relationships with these people before yeah. yeah being the leader and now yeah. it's like oh i feel like i'm getting viewed differently right. now because i'm part of the leadership team and right. I'm, like, I'm just the same guy <laughs> right yeah you you start you probably have more of experience of finding that relationships necessarily do change hopefully for the better but you know when your role in the company changes your relationships with people will necessarily change like it or not that's that's just gonna happen right when i was sort of started off as the lead i didn't you know my relationship with everybody was always as i was the lead right so guys that were 30 years 40 years older than i was on my team and they don't question me you know even in the beginning it was like I was kind of like, you should question me because <laughs> I'm brand new. <laughs> you have a lot more experience <laughs> than I do. You know, if I like suggested something, you should be like, you're an idiot. <laughs> this is not how we should do things. <laughs> but I think having worked my ass off like the first two months and caught up to speed pretty quickly, I think people had a certain level of respect, right? That was the hardest part that I would say... That was maybe even harder than working all this overtime now. That was probably the most pressure I ever put on myself was in order to earn the respect of guys on my team that have a lot of experience already, I had to sort of, in a sense, prove myself, right? I think that was one of the things we talked about with our very first episode. And that was um, <laughs> that was definitely challenging. But yeah, so the personality aspect of it that comes in, though, I think is... Having gone through the experience, I realized that it's something that I liked and also something that I did not feel uncomfortable with, right? And I think that was kind of an important thing I learned about myself over the last year and a half because a lot of the guys I've worked with that are on my team, guys that are a lot older, more experienced, I've asked them before. I was like, hey, just between you and me, you know, did you apply for my job, right? And... Some of the guys I talked to, right, that was willing to share, they were like, nope, <laughs> because they, they were like, I do not want that kind of responsibility because when people listen to your decision-making, the decisions you make, and it is sort of a final decision to some degree, right? Of course, you can get overridden by people of higher positions, but if something goes wrong <laughs> because of a decision you made, 
you don't have a safety net as much anymore, right? You're not just a developer because some lead told me to do it. No, it was your decision. So, and some people just didn't feel comfortable with that. Whereas I felt like I was completely comfortable with it. I've been in meetings where, yeah, some of my decisions were not the best decisions, you know, and I've had to sit in meetings to justify why I made a decision, right? Um, I've sat in meetings where I've had to criticize other leads' decisions. These are sort of different levels of conversations, and some people feel really uncomfortable with that. But I think the learning, the important thing I learned myself was like, I felt kind of natural doing that, which I think is sort of where as we mature, we sort of sort of see where some people will just be an architect and be like a principal architect. And that's their path, right? They don't have to worry about making a decision for a team of people, right? They, uh, they don't have to worry about the development of their team, right? I, I was also was sort of like responsible for sort of nurturing my team and making sure that this guy who really uh, excels at this particular type of work, you know, I'm going to make him an expert. You know what I mean? And what that means is (laughs) that I necessarily impact his career, right? Potentially for a big, big part of his career, because I'm, (laughs) I've just essentially asked this guy to work on these things, right? For the last year and a half, right? Obviously I try to diversify the stuff they work on, but mainly trying to make this guy an expert in something, right? That means that guy has just spent his last year and a half, (laughs) you know, working on a set of skills that I'm hoping is what he wants to do, right? And I I talk to them to make sure that that is what they want to do. But also like just the fact that like, how does this impact the guy? You know, I I feel like some people don't want to have that level of responsibility for both the project as well as the impact they have that they may have on people in a very serious way that could have a really long-term impact. That's, that's a big part of it too. I'm, I'm noticing June is that I'm feeling far more responsible now for these people's careers. Um, obviously, cause I had no, I had no business in it before, but now I do. And I'm like, all right, I got to take care of these people. And like, I want to make sure I can do that. It's just a little intimidating from the perspective of, all right, I need to understand what they do now. Right. That's a, one of the things with our current group is that we have a lot of people, actually everyone except for myself and you will be working, are working actually outside the sector. They're, they're doing work as exports essentially. And I have to better understand their work. And it's, it, I think it's an overall goal that, they start working a little bit more on the things that our sector focuses on. But I want to make sure they're happy. I want to make sure these these are positive changes to their workload and not negative. And it's going to take some real serious thought and consideration to make sure that these changes are positive and good for everyone involved and not just because on high says that's what we should be doing. Because I don't, I personally feel like we should be doing our best work for our sponsors and I don't really care about how the group sees it personally, right? Like I get, I get the whole group politics part, but I feel like that's almost a detriment. And so my, my thing is honestly is, is just to take care of the employees and everything else will come, which is kind of goes back to that other conversation we were having, like not doing things for the sake of just for a schedule or for some other dogma that wasn't how you're driven inside. So yeah, it'll be definitely interesting. And I'm starting to like learn the personalities a little bit and understanding 
where I kind of fit in. The, I'm the new guy for sure. So it's different and it's going to be an interesting challenge, but I'm glad that I have, a, I, I think everyone I do work with is really solid. There's a lot of respect in the room and I think they're equally as excited to have someone else who has their two cents. In a recent meeting, actually, I kind of said, um, what if we're looking at this all wrong? <laughs> you know, let me, let me challenge the whole point of this meeting essentially and say this sideways thing. And it was kind of shut down, uh, but <laughs> it was one of those things where I was like, you know what? This is why I'm here, right? I'm here to bring mm-hmm. new ideas. I'm here to bring my perspective and maybe this will be the, uh, the home run hit. Absolutely. I don't think it was, but it, it, it was being comfortable with the fact, Hey, I'm going to try. I'm going to see what it, if that's an approach. And I think similar to like political policy, sometimes when you say something like that, even if you don't think that's actually what's going to happen, you say it to stir discussion that might lead you closer to it. And I feel like that's something else that I kind of did there. And I don't know. It's been cool. It's just, it's definitely weird. Like I said, coming from the perspective of I know all these people as just a level one and now I'm a level two with leadership uh, tags, you know, added on. And it's, it's just like, wow, it's different, but it's a challenge I'm willing to take. And I'm excited to see you, uh, so I can see you tomorrow and for more days to come. And yeah, man, should be good. Yeah. One other thing to sort of, you, you kind of just jogged a, Another, another thought loose. I think as a lead as well, especially when you start, you know, handling bigger teams and things like that, you're going to have a lot of people, especially your good guys, right? Especially your good developers, they're going to have great ideas. And it's also the lead's responsibility to help those ideas actually like turn into something, right? And And give those people a voice through your you know, through, you know, mediated by you, right? So you have a voice now and essentially you have to use that to also like help the team, you know, right? So some of the, for example, you know, you may have, you were just talking about like, ah, you thought of some, hey, what if this doesn't work or whatever, right? Um, But if someone on your team is like, you know what, maybe there's this other way to do it, right? And you agree and you think it's a good idea, I think it's a really big part of your right responsibility too. to these are the kind of things that aren't really sort of taught, you know, <laughs> they don't really tell you like, this is your responsibility as a lead. Right. But like, it's, I think just ingrained as a good leader to kind of also, you're now a voice box for your entire team as well. So yep. I think that's, that's a big part of it too. And of course, like put them right in front they're the ones that end up getting the credit, right? So, um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, the the some of the best comments I got from guys on my team. Like, get this guy. So he was he was um he started off as a level one. He got his level two, sort of recently. But he's like from Morocco. You know, speaks French, has a thick French accent when he speaks English. And I just remember having lunch with him one day and he was telling him about how difficult it was. Like he came over here, barely able to speak French and he never worked a day in his life. And he had to essentially like survive. And essentially he was a math major, right? So he did, he got a math degree in France and then, you know, came to the U S and had to go find a way to live. So he decided to like, learn how to code and 
the first two companies he's ever gotten a job with, they laid him off because they essentially said, yeah, we can't understand what you're saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, granted, he does have a super thick accent, but <laughs> but like I've sort of like gotten used to the accent. Anyways, he doesn't talk that much because I think he's kind of self-conscious with his accent. But it was really heartwarming when he, on my last day, right, it was like 2 p.m. My exit interview was at 3 p.m. He like, all of a sudden, as I was packing, he just like came into my my desk, right? And he's like panting. I was like, whoa, you're all right? And apparently he was like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, I just realized like, you know, for your, your last day. So, and he was teleworking that day. So apparently he, he had driven down, right? He said he'd driven down as fast as he could and like mm. ran to my desk because he was afraid he could he didn't catch me before I left, right? And he basically was like, I just want to let you know that I would have left like a year ago if I went there. And that was just like these were kind of like comments that felt like, man, they were not only just sort of affirmations, but they were sort of acknowledgments of I think sort of what I think I'm meant to do as a career later. Like, where are my strengths? You know what I mean? Because this guy had so many great ideas, but he was so shy and people couldn't quite understand him. And yet, like, I always felt like it was my responsibility to bring his ideas forward to the whole team and and then to management to say, like, look, Claudel thought of, like, this great idea to do this thing this way, you know? I feel like Mm -hmm. at the other companies... Because of the language barriers, they didn't even give him a chance. They just—they actually just laid him off, you know. <laughs> um, wow! But this kid was brilliant. I'm glad you're able to make that impact, man. And I'm sure you'll continue to do that as your career develops. Uh, I see a lot of a lot of light in your future. Yeah. No, that's that'll be. Um, get some sunglasses, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm excited to see what awaits. All right, so. For the sake of keeping things topical, we want to talk about Spotify. We know it's been a long episode, but Spotify went to went to the press, so to speak. <laughs> Not even so to speak. They went to the press. They went to the press and they complained about Apple's rules and they don't feel like they're playing fair. And we wanted to talk about that briefly and kind of dissect, I guess. Do you think Apple is playing fair? Do you think Spotify's claims have merit? Or do you think they're just whining? I definitely have some thoughts on it, but I'm curious what you thought, June, since you were the one who put it in the in the sheet. Yeah, I guess this sort of ties in with something that's even more sort of recent, which is the whole Apple trying to get the big name journalism companies, right? New York Times, Wall Street Journal, or actually Wall Street Journal, I think actually agreed, but the Washington Post, I think is the other one. But anyways, you know, these big newspaper companies to essentially subscribe to Apple's like news subscription service, right? They all kind of say, yeah, we're not paying, I forget, what is it, 30%? 30% cut on yep. um, their revenues? Well, news news was rumored to be 50. Oh, jeez. Um, but, yeah, every, right. but everything else is higher. 30%. And Apple will make sure that you know that if you do a subscription, the first year is 30 and every year after that is 15 yeah, so with the Apple, the, the thing that I find the most interesting is people's argument of Apple not fairly treating, not fairly like defining what a service is to some degree. 
and the idea, a service that Apple provides, right? So people were essentially arguing that, hey, Apple, the service you're providing is the platform of the app, right? You've allowed people to essentially download an app called Spotify on people's phones. Now, as soon as they launch Spotify, all everything that uh, to be able to stream the music, right, to do anything in the app, right, that's all a service that then Spotify is providing, not Apple. So how is Apple allowed to charge the 30% on every music subscription, right? Um, which is ultimately a service that Spotify provides, not Apple. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Subscriptions made in the app specifically. If you do it online, they get no money. Right, 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 right. Yes, that that is a pretty big differentiator that they make. But I guess I don't, you know, I haven't done too much research on this, but read a couple of articles and really kind of find it interesting the various points that you know when spotify came out with the time to play fair.com and apple sort of hit back right with their own article i think it's interesting interesting to see that now i will say that regardless of how apple can justify that hey we can charge you this money because you know whatever <laughs> because we're apple or because you know you're taking you're essentially utilizing our entire network of users, right? Our customers who buy at iPhones. And their app kit and all their f- frameworks. Right. And all the app kit, the frameworks, exactly, that you use to make your service even possible, right? So the idea is, even if that's fair, right? I still am just, I have a big question mark around like, but what about Apple Music, Right. You make a product that necessarily is a direct competitor with Spotify that has none of these charges, right? The same types of fees that it, that Spotify gets incurred with, right? So, right, everything up to that point, you can make all the best arguments for fairness. But then as soon as you, you know, I feel like you say, well, now you have a product of your own that directly competes with it. At that point, I feel like it just completely shifts the scale. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Because I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't know how to get around that. Apple Music is just unfairly at an advantage. Or or I shouldn't say unfairly, but it is at an advantage, right? Period. Now, some may argue, well, but Apple Music doesn't get, you know, cannot be played on non-Apple devices, blah, 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 blah. Right. But it's not true. It can be played on Android. Is that true? Yeah, since day one. They've had an Android app since day one. Right. I knew that because I actually have iTunes on my work computer, which is Windows. But um, but I guess what I mean is being able to stream you know, music, right? Like AirPlay, things like that. Oh, yeah. AirPlay, that's actually interesting. I don't know if it works on Android. Right, right. Um, also, things like just being as natively integrated into smart speakers and things like that is not a thing either so but regardless those are decisions apple has made but like if you're just considering like a the scope of the iphone right i can't see how apple can do what they're doing while offering you know a directly competing product yep i think that's i agree with you june that's where it all falls apart it's all fine and good well I want to say it's all fine and good that they charge 30%. I think it's pretty damn high. Okay, so you think the number itself is just not fair. Yeah, developers have been saying for a while 30% is really high. 
And then they mm-hmm. go ahead and say, oh, but you know, you can do a subscription and it goes to 15. And, and I, I'd, I challenge that and say, look, you should just make it 15, period. And my reason for saying that is not every app is built to do a subscription. I also can really get behind the idea of it is a tiered system similar to taxes where your first $50,000 in sales is only charged at 10%, right? And and basically do it like that. So the smaller developers aren't getting hmm. killed as much. Mm-hmm. And the bigger the big guys are still paying the same amount. Yeah, it does seem like a bigger barrier to entry because of such a flat rate, 30%. Right. And I know Apple's not one for doing things that are quote-unquote complicated, but if you're... If you're a software developer, I think you can handle it. I'm kind of curious, though. Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll uh, play devil's advocate. But what what is really making you think thirty percent is too high? You know, other than like a, maybe a knee jerk reaction to think like, well, that's almost one third, right, <laughs> of a hundred percent. Like, you know, uh, like what is? Are there numbers? Are there sort of like evidence based sort of like to say, yeah, thirty percent is killing competition it's well there is no competition that's a thing right like to to play on apple's platform you have to go through the app store and if you go through the app store then you're automatically getting the 33 percent or the 30 percent. there's no option to roll your own payment system and take 100 percent. you can't even link to the web where you have your own payment system mm-hmm. so that that's one of like spotify's complaints you can't link to the web and I understand why Apple has these rules in place because they, at the end of the day, want to get compensated for creating this whole framework for you to build apps, which is a non-trivial cost to them, but I'd argue a sunk cost nonetheless. Like, they're going to do it regardless. They're not just doing it. So it's like a chicken and egg problem. In order to have the best apps for people to keep buying their phones, they have to make these frameworks. I'd argue that you're going to do it regardless, Apple, so that's not that strong of a position. At the end of the day, they get to pick the rules and you get to choose if you want to play by them. But I do think the place where it all falls apart, it's just like Amazon Basics. And it kind of gets to the whole Elizabeth Mm. Elizabeth Warren thing where if you have a storefront, you can't be selling your own products in your Mm. store. Mm. Like Amazon Basics is competing on the fact that they don't have to pay Amazon their fulfillment Mm -hmm. costs because they are Amazon. Right. Um, And they're able to offer a commodity good like a cable for cheaper. I mean, yeah. Yep. Of course, this this is an obvious business model. But when you become ubiquitous like Amazon, or if you become a one-stop shop for a whole ecosystem like the app, uh, app store, that that gets dicey. That gets uh, in, a, in a realm where you could say it's anti-competitive. The thing that's interesting is, so Netflix just recently pulled the ability to subscribe in their app, so you have to do it online. I'd argue Spotify could do the same <laughs> in that you could just pull it. I think the issue Spotify runs into is they offer a free tier and they are trying to make conversions. Whereas there's no free tier with Netflix, which might have just been a flaw in their system of designing how they're going to do this. When they make Apple Music and they're able to keep all the, the profits that are basically necessitated by labels, right? The labels have kind of made this negotiation for what it means to be a streaming service. Spotify has very similar things. Suddenly you end up having a position where Spotify has to make it more expensive in order to meet the obligations made in these same negotiations. 
that's tough. There's no way you can compete. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting, too, like how all these companies sort of have evolved to be these tech giants that they are now to have, you know, to offer so many different things. Yeah. All the service revenue. Right. And like Apple as a whole, right, made some like really smart decisions in terms of leveraging their position as, you know, as a huge platform and not just mobile, but everything, Macs, right? And essentially having people have a storefront, right? Sort of a a version of, if you will, like Amazon, like you were saying. And then essentially doing all the things they do with the apps and, you know, charging um, a good chunk of the, you know, fees of the revenue. So I don't know. I feel like they knew what they were doing and whether it's fair or not, man, I guess there's a point of which you say then, okay, so does that mean companies necessarily are limited by what they can sort of provide? And like they necessarily cannot get into certain markets because they already dabble in a different market. I also wonder like, what is, what does like a storefront really mean then? Like, especially in this sort of case, like you got iTunes, right? But that's, that's not really what we're talking about. What we're really talking about is Apple's quote unquote storefront is like their entire ecosystem, right? So I think this gets back to the golden handcuffs we were talking about earlier with those employees. Oh, okay. Yeah. So think about it. The, the space has become so consolidated by big players, be it Apple's app store or in the retail market, places like Walmart, Target, etc., where it's really hard for a product maker to sell their goods to a customer and not just be completely dictated terms, right? They have very little power in these negotiations because there's, there's certain players who give you access to an audience that you're not going to get otherwise. And they know it. I think it's really interesting. And I don't have a solution to it, but I think it's interesting. And what does that mean as we go forward that you just have to, you got to pay these prices because they've been become so entrenched in society, purchasing habits, et cetera, that you have to be on there or you're not relevant. And by being on there, you are basically making all this stuff just to give a lot of your profits to uh someone who didn't do much to do it you could argue yeah and come to think of it like this kind of business model has really been around for a long time right like like now i'm also thinking of like store brand products you know at a grocery store like exactly right they're (laughs) they're they're selling you know their own store brand generic brand right obviously always cheaper right and sometimes it's the same exact stuff. Right, right. And literally same exact stuff. And that's the other kind of business model I found interesting. Like, you know what Aldi does, right? Aldi and Trader Joe's. So, you know, same parent company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. you know how they like, because I always wonder like, how the hell does Trader Joe's have like so many, you know, their own stuff or Aldi's? How the hell does Aldi's have this, you know, manufacture all these different private label things? Well, guess what? They literally take a monster, right? Energy drink. <laughs> but slap their own label on it. And it's an agreement with Monster, the company, that like, yes, mm-hmm. you may, you, you're may you getting access to all of our customers, but guess what? You can't put your own brand on there. <laughs> I yeah. find that so fascinating. It's like, 
And what a deal. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know if I would ever sign that deal. I'd be like, how dare you? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I don't really care how much money there is in it. Yeah. Um, it's like, all you're doing is, I guess, like, their whole thing is they curate the options and their curation is the service. And their customers believe anything in there will be of a quality acceptable to them. Right. I don't know. It's, it's super interesting, June. And I'll just say, all of this stuff started by Apple starting to sell music in iTunes. That's the crazy part. The 30% originates from those days. And that was seen as a decent deal because if you were to sell in a Best Buy or something similar, you were paying roughly that. So Apple just said, hey, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. With software, where people were used to being able to sell it on the internet for quote-unquote free, you know, each unit was quote unquote free to move other than maybe some two percent three percent processing right. fee of credit card right it was huge it's a huge difference and yeah the economics changed dramatically i think that's the biggest difference there was no other way like no artist was really selling their albums directly to a customer mailing them themselves like they all had distribution networks they were used to the idea of paying a distribution network but the internet was fundamentally different with applications where you could do this other option. Yeah. And these other players have the option of having you sign up on their websites and stuff. But if you can't even link to those websites, it's a non-starter. Or you can't even reference them. You can't do anything to, to those sites. It's a non-starter to have that business model. You have to go through their distributor. And thus, you have to pay these these fees, which you might think are, are too high. I think at the end of the day, I think Spotify has a very valid point. I'm glad that they brought it up for no other reason than... As Apple's growing more and more into these industries, like tomorrow they're supposed to be announcing a video streaming service, news, credit cards. As they get more and more into services, I think Apple has to be careful that they aren't doing anti-competitive behavior, uh, particularly in the EU. Like they might get slapped in the wrist in the US, but the EU doesn't really allow for this kind of stuff. So Hmm. we'll see what happens. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Almost makes me kind of wish like Apple just, you know, stuck with what they're originally good at Stuck you know the damn computers why don't you make your freaking computers good to you know good to start with you know like good again really uh anyways they're getting there they're getting there 